the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Eight minutes after four o'clock is our time. Glad to have you with us. James Blind is engineering today's program and producing. And uh, later in the program, we're going to talk with Meg Wilson. She's the author of Hope After Betrayal, Healing When Sexual Addiction Invades Your Marriage. That's coming up later this hour. Well, like most of Americans who had the luxury of watching the uh, hearing that took place today, uh, I spent the day listening to testimony from uh, Brett Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court nominee and his accuser, uh, and throughout the day trying to listen carefully in order to have uh, an opinion that is forged in uh, fact, not just emotion, but to be informed and try to determine uh, what to believe. Uh, Brett Hume was quoted earlier today as having said before the accusations, there was no cooperation, uh, or rather before the hearing, there were accusations with no cooperation after the hearings. There were accusations with no cooperation, and it it essentially uh, didn't move the needle needle one way or another in terms of factual um, contribution. There was no more cooperation that was offered, Um, although one could argue that Brett Kavanaugh brought with him a calendar that gives some perspective on his activities. Uh, But nonetheless, my guess is, as I predicted before, that those who supported Judge Kavanaugh will have found sufficient grounds to maintain that support. Those who uh, supported his accuser would have found sufficient grounds to maintain that support. There are only three options. He's lying, she's lying, or she's mistaken. That she was, in fact, involved in an event, but it was involving someone else. Those are the only options that are available, and this hearing was not satisfactory in resolving those questions. What the Senate Judiciary Committee is left with is uh, taking what they heard, filtering it through their partisan um, filter, and then determining what to do next. Now, I heard just moments ago that it appears that the Republicans, or at least the leadership in the Judiciary Committee, are prepared to move uh, move forward. And what that means is uh, the committee would take a vote and the determination would be whether or not the nomination should move from the committee onto the floor of the U.S. Senate. Whether or not there are sufficient votes for that after this hearing, we're not sure. But I'm hearing now that that is likely what's going to be uh, proposed. And we'll try to follow that if more information is made available. Well, we uh, had a couple of things that were anticipated for today. One was that the president was going to meet with his deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, um, and the president decided that he was going to postpone and did postpone that meeting until next week. Uh, He had planned to meet with uh, his deputy attorney general uh, this afternoon with the White House saying that the president didn't want to interfere with the hearing on the Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, nor did he really feel inclined or did he want to fire the deputy attorney general. Well, the um, uh, White House press secretary, Sarah Sanders, said uh, on Thursday that the president spoke with Rod Rosenstein a few minutes ago and they plan to meet next week. Uh, They do not want to do anything to interfere with the hearing. The president has been scheduled to meet with uh, his attorney general, deputy attorney general at the White House to discuss the explosive New York Times report claiming that he had, in fact, suggested wearing a wire against the president and invoking the 25th Amendment to remove him from office last year. A Justice Department spokesperson confirmed that the meeting 
meeting between the president and the uh, deputy attorney general was pushed to next week. The number two justice official who frequently finds himself in the political crosshairs due to his uh, overseeing of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian meddling and potential collusion uh, in the 2016 presidential election was the subject of conflicting reports. Uh, The reports at first suggested that he had uh, resigned. Sources then said that he was expecting to be fired. In the end, he and Trump spoke and scheduled to meet for today. That has now been postponed to next week. His job for now is safe. And again, the president did say in passing that it wasn't his uh, desire to fire him, but that meeting would, of course, determine what happens next. Well, that moved the the top story um, on the ledger up, and that was the hearing today in which Uh, Brett Kavanaugh had the opportunity to face his accuser. And while I mentioned earlier that it it probably wouldn't be as satisfying in that there was not going to be like a Perry Mason moment in which someone stands in the back of the courtroom and says, I'm the one who did it. I'm responsible. Um, Interestingly, there was a... uh, an outburst, if you will, that took place before uh, the hearing took place in that there were uh, uh, witnesses who surfaced to say that Christine Ford may have mistaken them for Kavanaugh. Now, this is extraordinary. It didn't really come up. Uh, there might have been a vague reference to it in the hearing, but as uh, an extraordinary uh, series of uncooperated, lurid, last-minute allegations threatens to derail the confirmation of the Supreme Court justice. But just in the final moments, uh, apparently there were individuals who said, no, it wasn't him, it was me or us. Um, The uh, proceedings threatened to be upended by this uh, late-breaking development. In a statement released uh, Wednesday evening, Judiciary Committee Chairman, uh, Committee Republicans rather, revealed that on Monday they conducted their first interview with a man who believes he, not Judge Kavanaugh, had the encounter with Dr. Ford in 1982. That is the basis of his uh, complaint. They conducted a second interview the next day. Well, on Wednesday, Republicans said in a statement they received a more in-depth written statement from the man interviewed twice previously who believes he, not Judge Kavanaugh, had the encounter in question with Dr. Ford, who was, of course, a teenager at the time. Both of them were the accused and the person confessing to having um, engaged in that uh, sexual assault. Um, Those claims are a matter of dispute, however. On Thursday morning, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham told Fox and Friends that one of those individuals is crazy as a loon. The one that I've um, heard about, I think, is not reliable. He didn't name the individual, and the committee would uh, not release further details about either person when reached for comment. Another source, though, said there's no reason to doubt they're both of sound mind and are both sincere in their claims. Well, the accuser, Ms. Ford, has uh, previously said that uh, there is zero chance she would have confused Kavanaugh with anyone else. Well, in response, an aide to Democrats on the Judiciary Committee re- reportedly unloaded on Senate Republicans, saying they are flailing. Uh, according to NBC News, they are desperately trying to muddy the waters. Twelve hours before the hearing, they suggest two anonymous men claim to have assaulted her. Uh, Democrats were never informed of these assertions in interviews in violation of Senate rules. The aide before again, uh, calling for the FBI probe into Ford's accusations added that this is shameful and the height of irresponsibility, which is the height of irony, because the reason this hearing was be, was uh, held earlier today is because information was held. Committee members were not informed. Um, the uh, public disclosure came at the 12th hour Uh, Hence, the vote that was supposed to have taken place this week for an upper bound vote on Kavanaugh's moving forward in the Senate Judiciary Committee was held up for this very same thing. So it's kind of like the pot calling the kettle. Well, you get uh, the idea. Nonetheless, that 
um, came up uh, but was not a part of the hearings earlier today. We're going to continue to focus on what happened during the day. And uh, I guess at the end of the day, my uh, only advice would be that we would continue to pray that these men and women who will be making decisions about the next Supreme Court justice would have wisdom and it would require supernatural wisdom to be able to discern um, who to believe. They were both um, compelling uh, testimony. Uh, They were credible and a decision has to be made. 16 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the hearings that took place earlier today, first in the morning with uh, uh, the accuser of the Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, Christine Blasey Ford, telling senators that uh, his name had been totally and permanently, uh, uh, well, he said about his name, that it had been totally and permanently destroyed uh, because of these false allegations, as he characterized them. For those who watched the uh, hearings earlier in the day, uh, I think it would have been um, probably fair to say that most uh, looking on would have considered Christine Blasey Ford's testimony to have knocked it out of the park. She seemed credible. Uh, In her testimony, what was lacking was corroborating evidence. On the other hand, when Brett Kavanaugh and and the other thing I would mention is the uh, uh, the prosecutor who was used by the Republicans because she was a woman to uh, to ask the questions of Christine Blasey Ford. Um, I thought was very weak. In fact, she probably helped um, Christine Blasey Ford more than she uh, helped to resolve any of the questions and issues that were unresolved. Uh, So most people thought, well, in fact, uh, who was it? Chris Wallace uh, is quoted as saying that um, this is a disaster for Republicans. Well, the testimony came and went. And then, of course, uh, the accuser, uh, the accused rather, would have an opportunity to testify. And most who were attempting to watch objectively would say he was credible. He knocked it out of the park. So, again, what we had before the uh, the hearings were accusations with no cooperation. What we have after the hearings is um, our accusations with no cooperation, but an impression um, of both and whether or not they um, they seemed credible. And uh, given the questions put to them and their performance, it seemed to me both were. Although angry, visibly angry and emotional, Brett Kavanaugh denied under oath that he sexually assaulted Christine Blasey Ford, telling senators that his name has been totally and permanently destroyed by these false allegations after his accuser testified that she's 100 percent sure that he tried to force himself on her 36 years ago. Well, the drastically conflicting statements delivered to the Senate Judiciary Committee in what was dramatic testimony uh, carried echoes of the 1991 Anita Hill hearings left senators to make a judgment call on whose story to uh, to believe, which was accurate. The Supreme Court nominee's confirmation process was uh, derailed by the 11th hour charges, and it remains unclear whether the hearing will uh, sway enough senators to secure confirmation. Kavanaugh let loose in his hearing appearance, abandoning much of his prepared remarks saying at the very beginning, no one has seen what I'm about to say. These are my remarks. They have not been altered by anyone else. Uh, He blasted the process as a disgrace and a circus, referring to the conduct of the Senate uh, uh, Judiciary Committee and later sparring with the Democratic senators. The hearings ended uh, this evening after eight hours worth of testimony from both Ford and Kavanaugh. The confirmation process has become a national disgrace, he told the committee. The Constitution gives the Senate an important role in the confirmation process, but you have replaced advice and consent with search and destroy. Well, one of the most compelling uh, responses to all of this came from Senator Lindsey Graham, as, who, is, of course, is a Republican, but characterized how this was handled by the Senate. Uh, he's not talking about uh, Blasey, Christine Blasey Ford. He's talking about how the senators uh, handled all of this. And this is what he had to say. Senator Graham, 
Are you aware that at 9.23, on the night of July the 9th, the day you were nominated to the Supreme Court by President Trump, Senator Schumer said, 23 minutes after your nomination, I will oppose Judge Kavanaugh's nomination with everything I have. I have a bipartisan, and I hope a bipartisan majority will do the same. The stakes are simply too high for anything less. Well, if you weren't aware of it, you are now. Did you meet with Senator Dianne Feinstein on August 20th? I did meet with Senator Feinstein. Did you know that her staff had already recommended a lawyer to Dr. Ford? I did not know that. Did you know that her and her staff had this allegations for over 20 days? I did not know that at the time. If you wanted an FBI investigation, you could have come to us. What you want to do is destroy this guy's life, hold this seat open, and hope you win in 2020. You've said that, not me. You've got nothing to apologize for. When you see Sotomayor and Kagan, tell them that Lindsey said hello, because I voted for them. I would never do to them what you've done to this guy. This is the most unethical sham since I've been in politics. And if you really wanted to know the truth, you sure as hell wouldn't have done what you've done to this guy. Are you a gang rapist? No. I cannot imagine what you and your family have gone through. Boy, y'all want power. God, I hope you never get it. I hope the American people can see through this sham. That you knew about it and you held it. You had no intention of protecting Dr. Ford. None. She's as much of a victim as you are. God, I hate to say it because these have been my friends. But let me tell you, when it comes to this, you're looking for a fair process. You came to the wrong town at the wrong time, my friend. Do you consider this a job interview? The advice and consent role is like a job interview. Do you consider that you've been through a job interview? I've been through a process of advice and consent under the Constitution. Would you say you've been through hell? I've been through uh, hell and then some. This is not a job interview. Yeah. This is hell. This, this This is going to destroy the ability of good people to come forward because of this crap. Your high school yearbook. You have interacted with professional women all your life, not one accusation. You're supposed to be Bill Cosby when you're a junior and senior in high school. And all of a sudden you got over it. It's been my understanding... That if you drug women and rape them for two years in high school, you probably don't stop. Here's my understanding. If you lived a good life, people would recognize it. Like the American Bar Association has the gold standard. His integrity is absolutely unquestioned. He is the very circumspect in his personal conduct, harbors no biases or prejudices. He's entirely ethical, is a really decent person. He is warm, friendly, unassuming. He's the nicest person, the ABA. The one thing I can tell you, you should be proud of. Ashley, you should be proud of this, that you raised a daughter who had the good character to pray for Dr. Ford. To my Republican colleagues, if you vote no, you're legitimizing 
the most despicable thing I have seen in my time in politics. You want this seat? I hope you never get it. I hope you're on the Supreme Court. That's exactly where you should be. And I hope that the American people will see through this charade. And I wish you well. And I intend to vote for you. And I hope everybody who's fair-minded will. I think the important part of what uh, the senator had to say was the criticism that was reserved for the Senate Judiciary Committee and how this was handled. The fact that it could have been handled much differently, that Christine Blasey Ford's anonymity could have been protected by the committee if information had been made available sooner, um, reserving for the most part the criticism for uh, fellow members of the Judiciary Committee. As for Christine Blasey Ford, her opening statement for the Senate hearing can be found online. But among the things she said, she said, I'm here because I believe it is my civic duty to tell you what happened to me while Brett Kavanaugh and, Kavanaugh and I were in high school. She uh, describes that in her freshman and sophomore school year, she was 14 and 15 years old. A group of friends intersected with Brett and his friends for a short period of time. She'd been friendly with a classmate of Uh, Brett's for a short time during her freshman year. It was through that connection that she attended a number of parties that uh, Brett Kavanaugh also attended. We did not know each other well, but I knew him and he knew me in the summer of 1982. Like most summers, I spent almost every day at the Columbia Country Club in Chevy Chase, Maryland, swimming and uh, practicing diving. Now, this runs counter to what Brett Kavanaugh had to say about the circles that he ran in and the fact that uh, at the the season that she said this took place, his diaries, which he kept on a daily basis since he was in ninth grade, um, indicated he was elsewhere, assuming the party took place on the weekend. So you had testimony that was detailed, that was compelling. Um, when uh, Christine Blasey Ford offered her description of what she says happened, she was very specific about it. When asked by a, uh, a member of the Senate committee whether or not she was 100 percent sure that the the uh, assailant was, in fact, Brett Kavanaugh. She said she was 100 percent sure that she couldn't tell you when or where or what day. Um, the people who, that she offered as uh, having been present have all denied that it happened, but she was very compelling. So it makes for a very difficult task for members of the U.S. Senate uh, to know how to interpret what they heard. Now, we're talking about partisans, so I suppose it's less difficult than it should be because uh, most have already decided based on their political priorities Uh, what decision they're going to make. It was interesting that this morning, as uh, Chris Wallace said about Christine Blasey Ford's testimony, this is a disaster for Republicans, uh, saying that Dems landed a haymaker. Uh, By the time Brett Kavanaugh offered his rather lengthy opening statement, I think people began to set up a notice that this is not going to be a slam dunk as originally thought. He, too, was very compelling and emotional during this uh, opening statement. Uh, testimony. Now, part of the problem is most people are not going to sit through the testimony. They're not going to hear the full uh, opening statements made by either of these witnesses. You're going to hear the most compelling statements made by Christine Blasey Ford. You're going to hear a little bit of what um, Brett Kavanaugh had to say, but it's important to hear all of what was said, at least the opening statements, if not more, to really understand uh, what each of the uh, of the two witnesses had to say. It is now left with the U.S. Senate to determine what happens next. Um, I did hear before the program started that some are suggesting that they are going to uh, take up a vote as early as tomorrow. Whether or not that's true, I cannot uh, confirm at this time. But we certainly have a period of time in which we can pray for wisdom, that for the few moments of decision-making, these uh, men and women in the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee would set aside their partisan preferences and their preconceived notions and really seek wisdom in determining what course to take next. Um, that's our only, ho- only hope, rather, and I fear that uh, without 
that kind of supernatural wisdom. We're just going to see things continue to escalate. We're already hearing about impeachment if, in fact, um, Mr. Kavanaugh is confirmed. If he's not confirmed, we're already hearing about a two-year stalling tactic to prevent this administration from appointing anyone to fill that vacancy. So it is a mess. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to switch gears. In fact, I'm looking forward to talking with Meg Wilson, author of Hope After Betrayal, Healing When Sexual Addiction Invades Your Marriage. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 37 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, 17 years ago, when my next guest's husband confessed to years of sexual addiction, addiction rather, uh, her world seemed to fall apart around her. Her first response was that she wanted to get a divorce. I mean, who wouldn't? In the moment, she wanted the pain to end. But God told her to wait. And because she and her husband were willing to work toward change, God was able to restore what had been broken. She knows the devastation that sexual addiction can bring to a marriage, but has come through the other side stronger. And now she ministers to other women, offering them hope and helping them to do the same. She says the world uses the word hope as if it were a dream or a wish of something to happen. God's word, however, is much more potent. It is the certainty of things yet unseen. The fuel of faith ignites our hope. I see every day how finding hope takes a woman weakened by shame and devastation and makes her strong with resolve and trust that the Lord is with her. Hope makes all the difference. Well, her book is titled Hope After Betrayal, Healing When Sexual Addiction Invades Your Marriage. And she provides reassuring counsel, compassionate insight, and wise direction to those who have found themselves in similar circumstances. By sharing her story, talking to other women who've walked the same road, and turning to Scripture, she's helped countless readers through the steps of recovery and shows how they can follow the same path out of that darkness. Well, Meg Wilson is my guest. She is the author of Hope After Betrayal and a regular speaker at uh, women's uh, events, Bible studies and conferences. 18 years ago, she began leading healing heart groups. Then in 2013, she founded the Hope After Betrayal Ministries to bring help and hope to women whose husbands are caught on the web of sexual addiction. Her mission is to help women find hope and healing from the pain of their partner's sexual betrayal. In addition, she hopes to increase awareness in the church of how to minister to the broken hearted. She and her husband, Dave, have been married for more than 35 years, have two adult daughters. She makes her home in Vancouver, Washington, and we are just delighted to have uh, Meg Wilson with us today to talk about her book, Hope After Betrayal, Healing When Sexual Addiction Invades Your Marriage. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Georgine. I'm excited to be here. Well, this is a difficult uh, subject, especially for listeners who are perhaps in the middle of this. Maybe they've just discovered that there has been a betrayal. Let's begin by uh, telling your story just a bit so women have some indication of where you have come from. Well, the story began partly when my husband, well, actually a friend called us and said that he was stepping down as a deacon of his church. And I knew this man. He was a good husband, a good dad. That was the first I had ever heard anything about sexual addiction. But that was also the impetus for my husband confessing that he too struggled with pornography when he traveled. So I did what a lot of what I thought a good Christian wife does. I forgave him and I was praising God that he confessed to me. But what he did is not uncommon. He did a partial confession. He told me as much as he thought I could handle. Mm. So we literally we literally moved away from that state and moved to Washington. And we were in a church that had a group for men who struggle with addiction amazingly. And um, so he was in a group. He had a counselor. But he 
he had left a foothold because he had left information out. And so the enemy just waited um, waited until he was weak and was able to pull him deeper and farther. And by that time, I had started I had started groups at our church. I was actually about to share my testimony of hope with our very first group. And um, he had told his leader what had happened. And he said, you've got to get home now. You've got to tell your wife everything because she's about to share her testimony. And uh and so he did, and I was completely, and I was just completely in shock. I couldn't even fathom what was happening, and I, I went back and forth between not wanting to go to the co- the group and going to the group. Finally, my co-facilitator said, I'm, I'm picking you up, and I'm not going to answer my phone. I think you need to come and share what happened. So, of course, I went from facilitator to participant, and I immediately had 10 women there to support me. But I, I feel bad for that first group. They had to kind of watch their worst nightmare You originally uh, released this book more than 10 years ago, and what we're talking about today is a revised and updated edition of the book. What's been updated and revised um, that wasn't present in your original version? Well, I'm trying to be a lifelong learner. So in 10 years, there were a lot of things I had learned about the topic, about the process, just walking with more and more women. And then I also, after having a group of primarily African-American women, I realized that there are some cultural differences. So I actually had my friends help me uh, create a fourth woman story, Didi, who has more of an ethnic voice, who could be a woman of color. And she finds out about her husband's issues when a woman shows up at her doorstep with, a, with his baby. Um, so that was something that was not on my radar before and is, is more common in um, Hispanic and African American cultures. So I want my goal was that every woman who picks up the book finds herself in the pages because when we find ourselves in a story, we're more open to to hearing God's words rather than somebody just telling you something or or trying to teach you something. It's it's more powerful. Jesus used stories, mm-hmm. so I think he was think he was onto something. <laughs> well, you used a series of fictional women who represent the many ways that we get stuck, uh, as well as making good choices um, once. Um, sexual addiction has been exposed. Describe how that works in uh, not only telling the unique stories that each of them represents, but helping your readers see in their stories um, something of their own experience. Right. So we we basically go through the process, the initial the initial process of finding out whether that's disclosure, dis- discovery, and I call that blackout. And so we see one woman who responds very much in anger and lets her anger sort of carry her and make some not great choices. And we see someone who's more like I was, who didn't tap into the anger and really wanted to go straight to forgiveness. And, you know, so each chapter is sort of a different phase on the process. And we see women respond differently. They respond differently when they show up at a support group or they may have a different experience. They may not do that. They may go to a counselor and maybe not have a good positive experience. So I think that most women have have shared that they find something of their story mm-hmm. in each of the stories in all and actually all four there's a little there's a little bit of something that they relate to mm-hmm. now when you're talking about your readers you're talking about primarily women who have learned that their their husband has uh, problem with sexual addiction. What is her responsibility? I think it's important to talk about the role that a a wife should be expected to play or what she is responsible for, because we may tend to take on more than uh, is right for us to assume. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of times women feel responsible. I think one of the first places the enemy takes us is there's something wrong with me. I wasn't pretty enough, thin enough, 
whatever, nice enough. Um, so absolutely, the wife, any woman who is in this situation needs to know that this is not her fault, that there is nothing you could have done to change another person's decisions. Most of these men come to their marriages already addicted. Um, so it's that's not their responsibility. The other thing that women want to do is help their husband, um, help make appointments for them to go to a counselor, or they'll listen to the radio program and they'll want their husbands to do something. When we can't, unfortunately, there's nothing we can do to make them get help, make them get better. So that's not our responsibility. I'm, ironically, the one place where we are responsible is maybe the, the one place it's harder to find. We're responsible for how I'm going to respond. In other words, what is God calling me to do in this situation? He's not surprised by it, even though it wasn't his plan or his purpose. But his plan for my life is in no way diminished or reduced by what, by the choices my husband's made. So it's like, what do you have for me here? What do you want to teach me about your character, Lord? And um, and it's an opportunity to really, really lean into to the Spirit, really learn the voice of God, and then let Him guide the process. And so that's been the greatest gift out of this whole thing is my relationship with God has gone places I never knew it could. We're going to continue our conversation. We're talking with Meg Wilson. She is the author of Hope After Betrayal, Healing When Sexual Addiction Invades Your Marriage. The book is published by Kregel. We'll be back in a moment to continue that conversation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 52 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Meg Wilson. She is the author of Hope After Betrayal and a regular speaker to women's groups, Bible studies, and conferences. She and her husband, Dave, have been married for 30, uh, more than 35 years. They have two adult daughters. Uh, the Wilsons make their home in Vancouver, Washington. We're talking about her book, Hope After Betrayal, Healing When Sexual Addiction Invades Your Marriage. Now, sadly, this is an issue that uh, confronts more women than we've seen in the past. Certainly the Internet, social media makes it uh, easier to engage in uh, sexual addiction behaviors and beyond that. But what was your first step toward healing once you discovered the full uh, weight of what your husband had now confessed was his struggle? Well, I guess the absolute first thing I did was get on my knees and probably just cried out to God and said, why? And then I just, I remember the first time I picked up my Bible and I said something like, okay, God, I'm picking up my Bible because this is what Christians do. But I I really didn't think there was anything in there. And the very first thing I read was in Isaiah and the very first words were that your maker is your bridegroom. Then it went on to describe about um, that that I felt like a woman who had married young only to be abandoned. So he was describing exactly how I felt and reminding me that he is the number one person in my life. So that was just the first thing that reminded me that this is real and personal. And then I just reached out to any and all resources that he put in our path. My husband had a counselor. I had a counselor. We developed a spiritual care team based on the book by Earl and Sandy Wilson called Restoring the Fallen. I um, I had a group, my group, he had a group. So really anything that I felt like God put in front of us, we, we grabbed onto to try and, and do this slow, painful journey towards health and healing. And in the beginning, it was a matter of just watching. I had to just believe the behaviors because when someone's lied to you for so long, the words don't mean anything. So I had to just do my work and then watch and see, is he serious about doing his work or is he just checking off the box? Mm-hmm. Now, you were fortunate in that your husband wanted to work toward uh, reconciliation and to deal with the sexual addiction. My guess is there are women listening today 
um, who would very much like to save their marriage, but don't see that same um, desire on the part of their husband. Maybe they're not uh, transparent about the nature of the problem, or they're not willing to engage in the kind of uh, help that you and your husband both sought. What do you say to her? Yeah, I, it's heartbreaking. And I, I say that, well, actually for all of us, we have to get our eyes off of our husband and onto, onto God, mm-hmm. onto Christ. And that the plan for her life that he has is not in no way changed or diminished by, by what choices her husband's making. And I think sometimes we we hold on to marriage and it's almost like holding on to a dead animal. In other words, the covenant, we've all been through divorce. My covenant was broken. So it, it's a matter of can it be restored or not? And only God knows the answer to that. He would Obviously, we would all love for all of the marriages to be restored. But at some point when a husband isn't doing the work and a, and a wife's very health is at risk, then God says, you know, it's time to move on. And now you need to file in the courts of man that which has already happened in the courts of heaven. So I think it, it's there's no small thing. I, it, I think in just about every divorce, in a majority of divorces, there's one person who didn't want that. That's what makes it so devastating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, you have already given us an example of transparency, but why is there such great power in transparency and how critical is it to restoring a relationship that's been broken because of sexual addiction? Well, it's, I, it's essential between the couple. Um, thankfully, not everybody is called to be as transparent as my husband and I. This is an act of obedience. Mm-hmm. This, this is something that, that God's called. I, in fact, I tell people, be careful who you share with. This is this information can can be used against you. So all all of the tool, all of the steps that a woman needs to make need to be guided by God's hand, by the Holy Spirit. So the good news is not every woman has to be out in public talking about what happened. Um, but transparency between the couple is yes. essential. That's the way you rebuild. That's the way you rebuild trust. I know that you, your husband, was reluctant to tell you the full story because he thought you could only handle what he had told you in the beginning. How important is it um, the way that a woman responds once she's being told by her husband um, what he's struggling with? Well, I think I think it, it's it can be an important factor in the sense that if a woman is like, well. You know, if you go outside of our marriage, if if you have an affair, well, that's the line, then I'm going to divorce you. Well, if a husband knows that a wife has said that, that's obviously the enemy's going to use that and say, well, you can't tell her this. So um, I think had, had someone told me what was going to happen, I would have said that it would have been the end of the marriage. I would have divorced. I would have had, you know, I would have felt like I had justification and all of that. Every every path is different. It it just we have to we have to stay close to what God is telling us because God told me to wait, but He was also very gentle. He said, "I'm not telling you to do this over and over again." But He knew what I did not know. He knew that my husband would do the work and that he would um, fight for for restoration and healing. That's not always the case. So I do I know there are women who've stood before me that say, "You know what? I just have a peace," and God's saying, "It's time to go." Now, we're talking about the book Hope After Betrayal, Healing When Sexual Addiction Invades Your Marriage. Meg Wilson is my guest. Tell us more about the format of the book. You you not only share your own experience, but you also reflect the experiences of many women that you have worked with in a very creative way. Yes, I I basically, those are the four, there are four women's stories that, that we walk through each of the chapters. We watch the way they deal with anger. We watch the way they deal with um, discovery, disclosure, 
their own healing path. And um, and then as we talk, as we go through the information for that chapter, I might weave in the choices that I made, the ones that were good and maybe the ones that were not so good. And so that way, um, it's not just a series, it's not just a, someone preaching at you or it's it's very much in story format. And then there's also a place for personal reflection there are scriptures for the for the women to look up and engage with, and then an opportunity for her to journal her thoughts and, and listen to what the Holy Spirit's telling her for her specific situation. Well, the book is Hope After Betrayal, Healing When Sexual Addiction Invades Your Marriage. You can uh, learn more about Meg Wilson at hopeafterbetrayal.com. The book is published by Craigle and is currently available. Thank you so much for being willing to share your story and to come alongside and support women um, all across the country and, and certainly in our area as well. Thank you so much. Thank you, Georgine. God bless. We're going to take a break for news and traffic at the top of the hour. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing and engineering today's program. Today has been dominated primarily by the hearings that took place throughout the day in Washington, D.C., in which Brett Kavanaugh and his accuser, Christine Blasey Ford, uh, had the opportunity uh, to speak to members of the Senate Judiciary Committee and uh, share the accusation and the response to the accusation. It took, uh, as I mentioned, most of the day. My fear is that most people will only hear a few sound bites that have been carefully chosen by members of the media to create an impression rather than hear the full testimony of uh, these two, the Supreme Court nominee and his accuser. One of the things you can do is I noted that um, online you can read the uh, the testimony, or at least the opening remarks of Christine Ford Blasey or Christine Blasey Ford um, online. So you can at least hear the the read the opening remarks. I'm not sure if that's the case for uh, Judge Kavanaugh, because he said that he had uh, uh, was giving uh, an opening statement that no one had yet seen. There was something published. It was quite short. His opening comments were quite lengthy. And he said that he had written them himself and had just finished them. So I'm not sure his opening statements um, are available online. They were considerably longer and uh, more detailed. He made several uh, key points. Both were emphatic. Both, I thought, were credible in terms of their presentation. But the presentation is only part of what um, what has to be judged in determining the guilt or innocence of an individual and whether or not they're fit uh, to move forward. Um, as uh, Brett Hume said earlier in the day on Fox News, before the hearings, there were accusations and no cooperation. After the hearings, there were accusations and still no cooperation. And that's a. Uh, That's an issue. One of the charges that was heard from the Democrats throughout the hearing was, Brett Kavanaugh, will you call for, will you ask the president, will you support the notion of an FBI investigation? Now, Judge Kavanaugh was reluctant to respond to that question because he really doesn't have any authority. And why would you call for an investigation of charges that you deny applied to you? So it was sort of a nonsensical thing, but I'm sure it made political points. And the Republicans responded by saying there has been an investigation going on from the very beginning when accusations were made known to us anyway. And that is that uh, the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee that has the role of advice and consent and ultimately they advise uh, the full Senate as to their recommendation on the nominee, um, their staff is set up to do investigations and apparently had begun investigations at the first whiff of a an accusation re- regarding Judge Kavanaugh. Now, what they pointed out during the hearing was that Democrats were unwilling to uh, participate in uh, those hearings, that investigation. I think there was a better word for it, but nonetheless, so it was very one-sided by choice because uh, the Democrats were unwilling to participate. 
Um, so the the call for an FBI investigation in which they um, provide information um, is probably not going to happen, despite the fact that it was repeatedly um, asked for. At one point, the chairman of the committee pointed out that at any time you can request as a member of this committee an FBI investigation, not requested of the chairman of the committee, but of the FBI itself. And that was somewhat disputed back and forth. So there was some disagreement as to what was political posturing and what was possible with members of the Senate Judiciary Committee in terms of going deeper into some of the allegations that emerged in the wasn't even the 11th hour. It was more like the third hour before this hearing today. Uh, One interesting element was the Republicans made the decision that and this was based on criticism from members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, Democrats, suggesting that old white men questioning a woman uh, who is making um, allegations of sexual misconduct against the uh, the sitting nominee uh, would be an affront to uh, the process. So the Republicans made the decision. We are going to assign someone, a prosecutor, if you will, to ask questions for us. She will be a woman, someone with sensitivity and could ask questions in an appropriate and, and sensitive way. Well, of course, they were criticized for that. And the prosecutor herself was criticized for her performance. Now, I, I sat through, as I mentioned earlier, the hearings for both uh, the judge and uh, the doctor. And uh, I found that the prosecutor that was speaking for the most part for the Republicans did a fairly poor job of representing their interests um, and making a point for, for that matter. But nonetheless, um, this was an Arizona sex crimes prosecutor. She conducted some of the questioning at today's uh, Senate Judiciary Committee showdown. Um, Rachel Mitchell, she earned recognition for her efforts from Arizona's Democratic governor and attorney general at the time. Um, so she was uh, someone who would represent or at least would uh, had worked for a, a Democrat. So I think the Republicans thought this would probably be a more acceptable uh, person, inquisitor, if you will. Well, Mitchell is the division chief of the Special Victims Division at the Maricopa County Attorney's Office, uh, which consists of bureaus dealing with sex crimes and family violence. She uh, was in the national spotlight asking questions of uh, Judge Kavanaugh and uh, uh, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, uh, the Northern California woman accusing the judge. Um, The Senate Judiciary Chairman Chuck Grassley announced uh, Tuesday evening that they tapped Mitchell to serve as uh, nomination investigative counsel for the committee's Republican majority members. And, of course, the Democrats were uh, rather frustrated that they had not been told ahead of time. I'm not sure what difference that would have made, but it did rob them of one of their talking points that this was an investigation that could not be fairly applied because the the Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee were, for the most part, old white men, which wasn't entirely accurate. One of the members is relatively young, but nonetheless, uh, that is a um, term of derision these days. If you happen to have survived your youth and you happen to be a male and you're Caucasian, then there's nothing worse. Worse that you that uh, you could be identified as according to this new worldview. Uh, nonetheless, um, she did the questioning for uh, for the Republicans of the accuser and probably helped the accuser more than helped the Republicans through that process. She was uh, overly deferential by some uh, some some observations. Um, but when it came to Judge Kavanaugh, she was more like a prosecutor and just gave him an opportunity to answer some specific questions about. Uh, cooperation, accusations, and and so on. So she wasn't particularly helpful. And in fact, they essentially jettisoned her uh, by the second half of the day. So she served a, a function, but then was her services were no longer needed. One of the things I found rather interesting is really reflective of our day is the trolling on social media, people making fun of her, people making fun of different um, aspects of the trial, certainly not uh, for the most part, 
the accuser, but Brett Kavanaugh, his family, his wife, and so on. People can be so incredibly cruel. Now, the truth is this whole thing could have been handled in a way that would have spared Brett Brett Kavanaugh's family and the accuser, Christine Blasey Ford. There was a way for this to have moved forward without exploiting the situation for political gain. In fact, it was interesting at one point during the questioning, one of the senators asked her, this was a Republican on the committee, and I don't remember which one, asked her, uh, about why she or was she aware of the fact that she had the option of having uh, questions put to her in California at the place of her choosing, and it would have been a private uh, uh, setting rather than public. And she seemed to indicate that she had no idea. Apparently, her attorneys had not told her. So it, it raises some questions about what the purpose of some of this was. But it certainly could have been handled sooner. It could have been handled Uh, more respectfully for both the accuser and the accused in a way that would have allowed the process to move forward with greater uh, integrity. And if at some point uh, postponement would have been necessary based on the investigation, that probably would have been a a better approach. One of the interesting things that was presented by Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh was a calendar of the summer of 1982 uh, that he attempted to use to push back allegations of his whereabouts during that period, that sort of vague season, if you will. We don't have a time. We don't have a date. We don't have a place. Um, But a general season when the allegations were supposed to have um, uh, taken place. So he presented a calendar and something of a diary from 1982. He explained that his father, who was a man of great diligence, had back in the mid-70s began keeping a daily calendar and a a diary that he kept for decades. He would often refer to it and uh, talk with he and his uh, uh, with Brett Kavanaugh and his mother uh, about things that had happened in the past and so on. So Brett Kavanaugh Uh, decided in the ninth grade that he was going to do the same. So he had this detailed calendar that had all of his activities uh, recorded, and that included the summer of 1982. He went through this calendar to try to demonstrate to members of the Senate Judiciary Committee that the accusations, which were relatively vague in terms of no time, place, location, uh, the only um, opportunities when something like the allegation could have taken place, who he was with, where they were, and so on. Um, that was a rather f- interesting part of the uh, of the Brett Kavanaugh defense. Now, what role that will play in uh, the minds of senators, it was a, a very interesting element that he presented. Another thing we learned earlier this week was that um, one of Brett Kavanaugh's best friends, his drinking buddy, if you will, was Chris Dudley. And yes, I'm referring to that Chris Dudley. Uh, the national firestorm over the Supreme Court nominee um, drew an unexpected supporting player, former Oregon gubernatorial candidate Chris Dudley. Well, his court confirmation was upended, of course, by these allegations. And one of the things that was um, uh, was noted was that alcohol played a significant role in both accounts of uh, misbehavior alleged uh, to have t- to have um, taken place with Judge Kavanaugh. So media scrutiny on the eve of the hearing of uh, on Kavanaugh is increasingly focused on the judge's drinking habits in high school and in college. His yearbook page, the reminiscences and speeches both suggest that he uh, was a binge drinker. Well, one key question, did Kavanaugh drink so heavily that he could not remember what he had done? And that question came up in the hearing several times. Well, BuzzFeed News uh, talked to Chris Dudley, a Yale graduate, 
Portland Trailblazer player and Republican candidate for Oregon governor, who in 2010 nearly upset former Governor John Kitzhaber. He now lives in California and was interviewed by BuzzFeed about Brett Kavanaugh. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll tell you a little bit of what he had to say about his old friend with regard to these allegations of uh, binge drinking that may have led him to have engaged in activity that he could not remember, which, by the way, he roundly um, disputed. 18 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 22 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Talking about the uh, hearings earlier today between Brett Kavanaugh and his accuser, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. Uh, Chris Dudley's close friend uh, happens to be, right, uh, well, the former Oregon candidate, Chris Dudley, and he was... Um, uh, consulted he uh, because BuzzFeed uh, News talked to him. He was a Yale graduate, Portland Trailblazer player, Republican candidate for Oregon governor. Uh, in 2010, nearly upset former Governor John Kitzhaber. He now lives in California, but was interviewed on his friend, um, who uh, was described as a college drinking buddy. Uh, so Chris Dudley is a close friend from Yale, um, and when uh, when asked about the characterization of uh, his friend, Judge Kavanaugh, uh, Dudley said, when we when he went out Friday nights, I was usually with him. I never saw never, ever saw him blacked out. Never. Brett would drink, but he'd also be the guy who never missed a class. There's a reason he was top of his class. Well, BuzzFeed found a range of recollections regarding Kavanaugh's inebriation and behavior. And that was certainly a subject of much a conversation during the hearing today. Dudley also told the Washington Post that Kavanaugh remains a friend and is being treated unfairly. He went on to say, I went out with him all the time. He never blacked out, never uh, even close. Brett drank and I drank. Did he get uh, inebriated sometimes? Yes. Did I? Yes. Just like every other college kid in America. Well, not everyone, say. Dudley's uh, time at Yale was as... uh, um, The Willamette Weekly pointed out in a 2010 profile centered on basketball, a Yale teammate, Chad uh, Ludington, recalls that although expectations for Dudley were low, he soon outworked Ricky Ewing, a phenom whom Yale snatched away from Georgetown and other basketball powerhouses referring to um, uh, to him. In any way, in any case, an interesting connection uh, in Oregon, although Dudley now lives in, in Washington. Uh, meanwhile, our current governor, Kate Brown, participated in a walkout in support of Blasey Ford. And that was yesterday. So a gubernatorial candidate on the Republican side says, I knew him personally. No, he was not a, a person who ever blacked out. Our current governor uh, walking out in support of his accuser. Well, one of the other things that was presented by uh, Brett Kavanaugh was a letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee from 60 men and women who attended Georgetown Prep, the, uh, the high school or sister schools, and knew Brett Kavanaugh had uh, uh, and called the latest allegations against him nonsense and reprehensible. The letter addressed to the committee chairman, Chuck Grassley, and ranking member Diane Feinstein uh, was sent to uh, just six hours after attorney Michael Avenatti released a sworn declaration from a woman named Julie Swetnick uh, that's been to some degree disputed at this point. She alleged that the Supreme Court nominee was uh, present at a party where she became the victim of uh, sexual violence. Well, the letter emphatically rebutted those claims, saying we are men and women who knew Brett Kavanaugh well in high school. The letter began. We have seen reports today that Julie Swetnick, who says she graduated from a Gaithersburg High School, submitted a declaration to the committee alleging that Brett uh, participated in horrific conduct during high school, including targeting girls for gang rape. uh, Nonsense. We never witnessed any behavior that even approaches what 
is described in this allegation. It is reprehensible. And one of the things that took place throughout the testimony was uh, were things that were uh, put into the record. Members of both the uh, Democrat and Republican side of the aisle would submit something they thought was important to include in the record. Uh, that would either support their view of Brett Kavanaugh or their support of his accuser, Dr. Blasey Ford. Uh, also, there were um, female high school friends, or at least one, who says uh, the latest allegation is false and absurd. So there were contemporaries at the time uh, who uh, supported the uh, the notion that Brett Kavanaugh was not capable of the kind of behavior he has been accused of. Um, on the contrary, the names that were mentioned for the uh, to have been present at the time that the alleged event, t- event took place um, have either said that they have no recollection or that it did not take place, which made it uh, difficult when you have a someone who presents a credible uh, testimony of what she alleges happened um, and then cooperating witnesses uh, don't, uh, of course, 35 years, 36 years, it's not surprising, don't support that uh, testimony. Well, meanwhile, Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley is suing to block the Senate from voting on the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Merkley is a Democrat from Oregon. He contends that the Trump administration has interfered with the Senate's ability to provide advice and consent by withholding documents from Kavanaugh's tenure working in the White House under President George W. Bush. Now, this is sort of an old claim that we've heard throughout the uh, nominating process. Uh, Many describe it as a stalling tactic to request more and more documents so that it's impossible to move forward. In a timely fashion, it takes about 60 days on average for a Supreme Court nominee to go through the process. And as was mentioned in the hearing earlier today, we're somewhere around 90 days for Brett Kavanaugh. The president and Mitch McConnell want to ram through this nomination come hell or high water without real advice or consent by the Senate. But that's just not how our Constitution works, Merkley said in a statement. I am suing Donald Trump and Senator and Senate Majority Leader, it's abbreviated today, to stop the unconstitutional Kavanaugh confirmation process. They may want to ram through this nomination nomination come hell or high water, he tweets. Well, Merkley wants a federal judge in the nation's capital to intervene and prevent the confirmation vote until Kavanaugh's full record is available for public scrutiny. Uh, The Trump administration cited executive privilege in withholding about 100,000 pages, although at least that many have already been released from Kavanaugh's uh, time as legal counsel. Uh, The administration is also saying that disclosure of deliberations and advice would would jeopardize a president's ability to carry out their core constitutional duties. And of course, He's referring to the previous administration or the Bush administration where he would have served in that capacity. GOP leaders said a Senate Judiciary Committee vote for Friday. Hope to confirm Kavanaugh early next week. That's even as the showdown hearing has come and gone. Now, we're not clear at this point whether or not they're going to stick to that timeline. But that's what uh, at least uh, some were saying earlier today at the conclusion of those um, those hearings. Well, Senate Majority uh, Chairman Charles Kraft, uh, Grassley rather, went out of his way to arrange for a second accuser of the Supreme Court nominee. A Wall Street Journal commentator argues in a series of tweets uh, allowing her to testify. In her uh, tweets on Tuesday, Kimberly Strassel described an email exchange over several days between Grassley's Judicial Committee staff and lawyers for Deborah Ramirez. But a lawyer for Ramirez, John Clune, disputed the account on CNN Anderson Cooper C-360. Clune accused the majority party, Republicans, of playing games in efforts to set up a date for Ramirez to testify. Clune said the committee blew off a scheduled call with uh, Ramirez, who alleged in a New Yorker article published Sunday that Kavanaugh exposed himself to her and uh, uh, when they were both students at Yale. No one has corroborated her account. Uh, we, in fact, the, wall, the uh, 
New York Times declined to carry the story because after a two-week investigation, they could not. We got on the phone and only the minority party showed, Kloon told Cooper on his CNN show. Now, part of the reason only the majority uh, party has appeared on some things and the minority not is because, based on partisan preference, I suppose, the decision has been made not to show up when it was uh, to your advantage. Well, every time we try to set up a phone, the majority party either change the rules on the phone call or they want additional information as a precondition for even having a phone call with us, he said. Well, Strassel disputed Kloon's characterization. Her series of tweets described the email exchange between Ramirez's lawyer and committee staff. Republican committee staff sent an email to Ramirez's lawyer Sunday afternoon, the day the New York Times published the story, Strassel writes. She gives this account. Ramirez's lawyer responded Monday, demanding an FBI investigation of the allegations and suggesting a call to discuss a possible in-person interview with Ramirez on appropriate terms. Throughout Monday, the committee requests uh, the evidence of Ramirez's claims. Her lawyers respond with repeated calls for the FBI to get involved. The only evidence they cite is the New Yorker article. A little circuit reasoning there. On Tuesday, Ramirez's lawyer again failed to provide evidence but moved uh, a conference call to the end of the day. Republicans respond with more inquiries about evidence and possible future testimony before agreeing to a call. At this point, Strassel recounts Democrat staff intervene in the exchange to apologize for Republicans' preconditions and offer to put Ramirez's lawyer in touch with the FBI and set up a conference call. A few hours later, Republican staff send their sixth request for some kind of statement or further information at the uh, at which point Kloon goes to CNN. So what they're looking for is, you know, you have an article it's sort of a second-hand account of events. They want to hear a first-hand account with corroborating evidence. This is a serious accusation, Strassel wrote on Twitter, saying no law enforcement would, would commence investigation without such a statement that is a basic request in line with any committee probe. Yet every polite request for basics, basic on-record statements are ignored, rebuffed, delayed, denied. The GOP has bent backwards. Well, blaming us for being non-cooperative is just flat-out not consistent with how things have gone and what the email show Clune said on CNN responding to claims that Ramirez was being purposely evasive um, and uh, media contacts for the committee and in Grassley's office did not respond uh, to more information from the Daily Signal on that. So this is sort of the tangled web that's uh, still being uh, attempting to be unraveled in uh, in the wake of the hearing that took place today in which the original uh, accuser and the accused had the opportunity to speak to the Senate Judiciary Committee. 32 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 37 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, there are 10 Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee. They are unanimously opposed to Kavanaugh. That was before these most recent disclosures or accusations of sexual misconduct. With only 11 Republicans on the committee, all eyes are are focused on undecided Senator Jeff Flake and others. He took to the Senate floor on Thursday on the eve of what could um, uh, could make the decision, the, the be the deciding factor in the future of Judge Kavanaugh, saying, I do not believe the claim of sexual assault is invalid because a 15-year-old girl did not promptly report the assault to authorities, as the President of the United States said two days ago. But he added, nor is one of them a, a, a proven sex criminal, as has been circulating on the left side of the Internet. Uh, These are human beings with families and children. Each is suffering through an ugly process that we have created. Well, all eyes are turned on several key swing vote senators who remained 
outwardly undecided on Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh's fate late um, today. After the hearing, moderate Senators um, Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, as well as Senator Joe Manchin and Jeff Flake, huddled to discuss the nomination of uh, Brett Kavanaugh. They talked for approximately 30 minutes before a GOP conference meeting on Thursday evening ahead of Friday's planned Judiciary uh, Committee vote on whether to recommend his confirmation to the full Senate. And again, that's still pending. Senator Orrin Hatch, a member of the Judiciary Committee, said after the uh, conference meeting that following the hearing, I think um, we're going to go ahead. I worry about every one of these votes. Well, there were indications late today that the key senators remain undecided. There have been no decisions, Manchin reported, uh, outside the hearing room. There are some concerns that people have, and we're going to try to close the loop. Well, after hours of uh, testimony from Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Floyd, the California professor accusing Kavanaugh of sexually assaulting her more than three decades ago, uh, Manchin said both witnesses were credible. Well, Fox News had uh, learned that Republicans tentative plan to hold a final confirmation vote on Kavanaugh before the full Senate sometime next week remains uh, the same. OK, this uh, this just in from James Senate Judiciary Committee votes at 930 Eastern time as per USA Today. So this is the, the committee voting whether or not to uh, pass this out to the full committee with or without recommendation. So this appears, at least according to USA Today. Uh, which James just handed me that the Senate Judiciary Committee will vote tomorrow morning at 9.30. Now, again, this is not the full Senate vote. This is just members of the Judiciary Committee, what, 22, 23 members, who will vote on uh, whether or not to um, send the nomination to the full Senate floor with a recommendation in favor of, opposed to, or with no recommendation at all. So that apparently will happen. Now, this doesn't indicate what these four... um, undecided voters, uh, members of the the Senate will do. Now, not all of those names I mentioned are on the Judiciary Committee, but their votes are important before the full Senate. And that's where uh, this will all be be weighed out. Again, we're talking about Senator Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Senator Joe Manchin and Jeff Flake. Undecided as of this point, as uh, as of this moment. Uh, But again, they're not on the committee. So uh, with one exception, uh, so they won't uh, weigh in on that decision. But this morning, Susan Collins voiced reservations about moving forward with the uh, confirmation without issuing a subpoena to his friend Mark Judge, who did uh, testify uh, under oath may not be the right way to put it, but on penalty of felony. Because the investigation through the Senate Judiciary Committee, he was interviewed and it's uh, it's a type of under oath. And you could, um, in fact, be charged with a felony if you were to provide misleading information. Uh, Now, uh, Collins is suggesting that perhaps he needs to be subpoenaed. This is Mark Judge, who Ford claimed was in the room when he allegedly assaulted uh, uh, her in the 1980s. He has in that testimony that I mentioned conducted by the Judiciary Committee has denied any knowledge of those events and certainly not participation in them. Well, Lisa Murkowski was photographed huddling with Senator uh, Feinstein on Capitol Hill earlier in the day. That sparked a flurry of speculation on social media. There's a lot of speculation uh, going around these days. Uh, Collins and Murkowski are not on the Judiciary Committee, so they're not going to participate, as I mentioned, in the planned vote on Friday morning. Jeff Flake, who is a member of the committee, didn't ask Kavanaugh any questions during the hearing. Instead, he opted to give the general statement without committing uh, firmly one way or the other on that nomination. He uh, previously had insisted that Ford be allowed to testify before an up or down vote. That has now taken place. What he will do, we don't know. Well, in an apparent effort to appeal 
to senators on the fence as well as to clear his name and unload on what he described as a deeply unfair and partisan process. The judge abandoned much of his prepared remarks to blast the proceedings as a disgrace and a circus. He's referring to the process that the senators are responsible for and later sparred with Democratic senators. The hearing ended this evening at about uh, after eight hours worth of testimony from both Ford and Kavanaugh. Um, He told the committee, Judge Kavanaugh, this confirmation process has become a national disgrace. The Constitution gives the Senate an important role in the confirmation process, but you have replaced advice and consent with search and destroy. Senator Lindsey Graham, whose voice we heard earlier in the program, also let loose on his uh, colleagues during the proceedings, which he called a sham hearing to uh, probe sexual assault allegations against Kavanaugh in display that uh, earned him praise from the White House and scorn, of course, from his opponents on the left. He alleged the Democrats handling was all about politics. And again, we're talking about the timing when the information was made public and so on. This is the most unethical sham since I've been in politics, a visibly angry Graham said from the uh, dais while pointing at Democratic senators. And if you really want to know the truth, well, I won't say the expletive he did. uh, You certainly have done what you've um, uh, wouldn't have done uh, what you've done to this guy. So Apparently tomorrow morning, we'll know a bit more about uh, the fate of Brett Kavanaugh. Well, what happens next if, in fact, he is uh, does not succeed? As I mentioned, there are 10 Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee. They're unanimously opposed to uh, Brett Kavanaugh. They were opposed to him long before these most recent allegations. Eleven Republicans on the committee, all eyes are uh, focused on those potential holdouts. Well, if Kavanaugh is defeated, uh, sources say that Uh, The White House is prepared uh, with a plan B, assuming Republicans maintain control of the Senate. Now, the timing of all of that, that's uh, in doubt. It includes five U.S. appellate court judges, uh, each of whom whom rather has met personally with the president as part of the interview process for the present high court vacancy. Um, Among them, 46-year-old Amy Coney Barrett. As a devout Roman Catholic, she's seen as toxic to some Democrats. In a confirmation hearing for her appointment to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, ranking members Diane Feinstein, in fact, said of her uh, Catholicism, the dogma lives loudly within you, and that's of concern. Is that a religious test? One wonders. Well, Barrett's uh, response was measured. If you're asking whether I take my Catholic faith seriously, I do, though I would stress that my personal church affiliation or my religious belief would not bear on the discharge of my duties as a judge. Raymond Ketledge, a 51-year-old, has um, solid conservative credentials. He ruled to, to restrict the collection of dues from public sector unions and ruled the IRS was politically biased against the Tea Party. Democrats have said 49-year-old Judge Joan Larson, Larson rather, poses another threat to vote Roe versus Wade. So any conservative by this measure is a threat um, and they will not support. And the truth is, if Brett Kavanaugh would, would have said at some point during this that I do support Roe versus Wade, I will um, fall on my sword over this. He probably would never have faced any of this um, firestorm, but that's a whole other story. Anyway, Democrats have said the 49-year-old judge Joan Larson poses another threat to Roe versus Wade. She wrote, quote, in the case of abortion, the constitutional right was first formally and um, articulated by the Supreme Court itself, not by the citizenry. Amal Thapper, a 49-year-old, would be the first Asian or Indian-American judge to sit on the Supreme Court if he were to be confirmed. He once sentenced a nun who broke into the Y-12 National Security Complex in Tennessee, uh, protesting nuclear power, to three years in jail, later overturned on appeal. And Judge Thomas Hardiman has uh, vigorously embraced judicial restraint, once writing that uh, his place is not to upset the will of the people or expressed um, as expressed rather through their elected representatives. 
uh, Judge Thomas Hardiman. If any of them is willing to come before the committee, and that's in doubt at this point, given the uh, the way this has uh, gone, that judge likely will face a different but um, punishing gauntlet than uh, Kavanaugh has run. Uh, that, in turn, um, may lead angry Republicans to consider another option, dropping the hearings. Uh, they are not constitutionally required in the Senate's role to of advice and consent. It only um, it was only when um, Lewis, I think it's Brandeis, the first Jewish Supreme Court justice, was nominated in 1916 that the Senate Judiciary Committee started asking the nominee questions. So that precedent was set then. It's not required. It was the first shot in which, uh, what has become all-out war on Capitol Hill. So I think that would uh, certainly result in a war of a different kind if they were to jettison the, the questioning period by the Judiciary Committee. But that's a possibility, and it certainly falls within uh, the Constitution. So we'll see what happens next. But if uh, the Kavanaugh nomination were to fail, those are some of the options. 47 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 52 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Trump yesterday held a marathon press conference. Naturally, the reporters asked many questions on Kavanaugh and his accusers. At one point, the president gave an impassioned denial of past sexual misconduct accusations against him. And he also admitted that his experience with false allegations have affected how he is uh, inclined to view allegations against Judge Kavanaugh. But he assured the reporters that he would uh, he could change his mind about Kavanaugh if Ford is truly convincing in her testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, He thinks uh, Ford's testimony is so important that he may delay his meeting with Rosenstein. That's what he said yesterday during the press conference, which, of course, we now know he did. They'll be meeting next week. Rosenstein is the assistant attorney general, and um, they're going to meet uh, next week to discuss uh, New York Times disclosures about plans that he may or may not have had for the president. Um, and the president also indicated he um, prefers not to fire Rosenstein. So that could uh, be something to watch for next week. By the way, Juanita Broderick, the woman who accused former President Bill Clinton of raping her decades ago, slammed the Democrats for what she called the biggest double standard I've ever seen in their treatment of sexual misconduct allegations against Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. Broderick spoke to the media outside the Senate building where The high-stakes hearing with Kavanaugh's uh, first accuser was held. Kavanaugh testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee after Christine Blasey Ford, who says Kavanaugh assaulted her in 1982. Well, Ford says uh, she first revealed the allegations in 2012, and you can hear the rest in her opening remarks, uh, which can be found online. But Broderick, outside the Senate, told... uh, Um, Fox News Ellison Barber that there was no comparison between her case and Ford's because Dr. Ford has no evidence. I had the uh, who, what, when, where and how and had five people that I told, not even counting the woman uh, who found me 30 minutes after the event uh, took place um, with a swollen and busted lip, torn clothes and in a state of shock. She alleges that uh, Clinton assaulted her in Arkansas in 1978 when she was a nursing home administrator and he was state attorney general. She her claims rather uh, she claims the attack left her with a bloody lip and that Clinton told her to put some ice on it uh, before walking away. Well, on Thursday, she attacked the Democrats, such as Senators Chuck Schumer and Dianne Feinstein, both of whom were in the uh, Congress at the time these allegations were made. Uh, public, she said, for not believing her in the 90s, uh, but have jumped to believe Ford's account despite the uh, the cooperating evidence Broderick said she had in her case. It makes me angry, she said, that they left Clinton in office 
Uh, she said about the Senate Democrats, who she said refused to consider her allegations. She indicated she was skeptical about Ford's accusations, saying it's not that I've decided she hasn't anything truly evidentiary to this point. How can she um, get this right? How can she all of a sudden have something new to say today? She presented nothing. She went on to say. But again, raising that um, the specter of what happened uh, years ago when there was, in fact, corroborating evidence, witnesses and so on. Well, the U.S. economy grew as expected in the second quarter, according to a reading Thursday that confirmed that uh, gross domestic product rose at its quickest rate in nearly four years. GDP, the broadest measure of how the economy is progressing, increased 4.2 percent, the Commerce Department's Bureau of Economic Analysis reported. The same is expected from economists surveying the Thomas uh, Thomson Reuters. It was uh, fastest pace since the third quarter of 2014. This was the final reading for the quarter and now sets the stage for quarter three and what is expected to be a year that will show growth better than 3%, which the Trump administration has set as its goal. And by the way, on this day in 2004, NBC announced that The Tonight Show host Jay Leno would be succeeded by late-night host Conan O'Brien in 2009. O'Brien, his stint on The Tonight Show in 2009 was, uh, would last just over seven months. And on this day in 1991, the Senate Judiciary Committee deadlocks seven to seven on the nomination of Clarence Thomas to the U.S. Supreme Court. And on this day in 1964, the U.S. government publicly releases the report of the Warren Commission, which um, concludes that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone in assassinating President John F. Kennedy. Well, it has been a, an emotionally draining day. As I mentioned at the top of the uh, program, I spent the entire day watching and listening to the hearings, trying to keep an open mind. And as I predicted, while um, both uh, witnesses seemed credible, both had certainty in their uh, version of events or uh, in emphatically denying that events took place. Uh, it was uh, it was a very difficult uh, thing to watch, knowing that at the end of the day, we weren't any closer to having certainty than we were at the beginning. I quoted a couple of times already, but I think it bears repeating. Brett Hume of uh, Fox News made the point, and I think accurately so, that before the hearings, we had accusations and no cooperation. After the hearing, we have accusations and no cooperation. Um, and the advice and consent role of the uh, the Senate, which will follow these hearings, will result in a vote to uh, send the nomination out to the full Senate, either with their recommendation, without their recommendation, or with a split decision in that regard. And this is very likely to move uh, forward, and the fireworks will um, will continue. I would encourage anyone who is interested in having a clearer understanding and appreciation for what happened today to try to at least uh, listen to the opening conversation. Um, Comments made by both um, Christine Blasey Ford and by Judge Brett Kavanaugh to give you a flavor of what each of them had to say. Now, we were encouraged to see what's the tenor of their voice. How are they making presentation? The facts are, are at least of equal importance. Uh, to their demeanor. I thought both came across credible, both uh, came across very believable and were emotionally invested in uh, their testimony. What we have to rely on then is whether or not there is a presumption of innocence, if there's cooperating evidence and so on. There was a lot of discussion about the need for an FBI investigation, which was answered by the Republicans saying that the Senate that has an investigative team available to it and does this on a regular basis began an investigation the very day that these allegations became public. And that has continued right up through the two most recent allegations. So um, I would invite you to join me in praying for wisdom for those who are going to make decisions about the future of this um, 
a Supreme Court vacancy and the fate of Brett Kavanaugh and certainly for uh, the individuals involved. Um, Christine Blasey Ford, who wanted to remain anonymous and was deprived of that opportunity. Brett Kavanaugh's family, who is uh, swept up in all of this, um, this furor. Tomorrow is, well, Fun Friday, and we're going to try our best to do just that. But certainly if there is breaking news and a vote, we'll break in. I want to thank James Blinn for producing and engineering today's program, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.